It's by now well-known uh, Excellency, Lords, Ladies and Gentlemen, in the world of international law that a new judge at the International Court of Justice finds awaiting him or her on the office bookshelf not only the pleadings, judgments, and opinions of the Permanent Court of Justice and of the International Court of Justice, but the four volumes of Shabtai Rosen's The Law and Practice of the International Court, 1920 to 2005. Of course, there have over the years been many well-respected and knowledgeable writers on the court. But the question arises, and it's a question that is the subject of my lecture, how could it be that one who never was, for various reasons unrelated to his ability, a judge of the International Court, produced thousands of pages so full of insight and understanding and precise in their formulation that they've come to be regarded as somehow determinative of issues that arose in the life of the court. These volumes were a marvel, yes, but how could they be so, especially as they were written by an author who had not lived within the court? The answer is twofold. First, Shabtai Rosen was a great, great man and scholar. Second, for nearly 60 years, he had an inside track at the court. And he had it because he noted, he saw, he compared, and he asked, asked, and asked again, seeking information and explanations from seven registrars. And because of his brilliance and integrity, they sought to assist him in his search for information and answers. His brilliance needs no explanation from me this evening, but a word on his integrity might help to explain how this outsider at the court was really its greatest insider. I mean this. Rosen treated the court with the utmost respect. He wrote with the greatest courtesy. He constantly expressed his appreciation for the answers he was given. He was careful never to reveal, even in his private correspondence, whether he believed a particular judgment or advisory opinion to be of merit or to have shortcomings. He never offered opinions on judges or what they had written. 
He was not a commentator on the court in that sense of the term, but he sought to understand everything about the court, simply everything, and he did it mostly through a remarkable correspondence with successive registrars who fully trusted him for some 60 years. It seems that as early as 1952, Shabtai Rosen, then legal advisor of the government of Israel, but manifestly also already a legal scholar, was in communication with the International Court of Justice. That year, he wrote to Edward Hambro, the then registrar, telling him that, I'm now going to quote, it is my intention to try to write a full-length work on the International Court of Justice, describing in particular its law, practice, and procedure. As we know, he was brilliantly to succeed in this intention. He asked Hambro, if he might receive a bevy of documents, records of pleadings, hearings, etc., as soon as they appeared in stenograph form. It is possible, is it possible, Rosen asked, to have a standing arrangement with the registry to that end. Then, in a paragraph that shows both his prescience and his tax, he wrote, undoubtedly during this work, I shall have many occasions to seek information and advice from the registry. I would not like to have to trouble you every time unless you're willing to be the victim of my inquisitiveness. And I wonder if perhaps someone in the registry could be my contact man. Naturally, the work will be written on my entire responsibility, but I think it would enhance its view very considerably if I could know the views and attitude of the court itself on different topics. My plan is to have it published before the year 1955, when, theory, when in theory, at any rate, the possibility of amending the charter and the statute might be more closely upon us. Now, in the event, his law and practice of the International Court was first published in four volumes in 1957. But amendment of the charter and statute save for important but modest Security Council numbers and consequences for voting majorities have yet to happen. Sometimes requests were so sensitive, as in the case of ongoing contacts between the court and Albania after the Corfu Channel judgment, that even Rosen had to receive a negative answer about the provision of information. After the death of Edvard Hambro, 
Roseanne renewed his request to the new registrar, uh, His Excellency Senor Lopez Olivan, expanding their content. By September 1966, Stanislas Aquarone had become registrar of the court, and it was he who took up the now well-established correspondence with Roseanne. The latter asked, in a letter, some sharp questions about procedure and the role of the president in the event of an equality of votes. And that arose, of course, out of the controversial Southwest Africa opinion. He rapidly received the forthcoming, not, not yet concluded, and important 1972 Rules Amendment. He wished to know if the discussion leading to these would be published and thought it should be, stating acerbically, having heard a lecture by a member of the court on the new rules, it's my candid opinion that something objective is required. There was no such publication. By early 1973, he was preparing a revised edition of what he termed his little book, that is, the world court, what it is, and how it works. He wanted his photos to be up to date. He wrote to the registrar that, I'm quoting again, in its public relations drive, on which in some respects I've been critical, the court should pay some attention to the visual aspect and have some decent photos made all the time. And certainly when I was at the court, we seemed constantly being called out to stand on the great stairs behind the entrance hall to have photos taken. But the court has very much taken uh, that comment to heart. And for all those interested, there now exists, for example, the handsome and informative coffee table book entitled The International Court of Justice, for which Philippe Couvreur, the present registrar, had much responsibility. By July, Rosen was again writing to Acaroni on some technical issues he'd noted in the nuclear test cases and put some queries about practice on interim measures. During a visit to the court, a barrage of detailed comments were discussed. He sent warm congratulations on the registry's recent publication on the court and added, I quote, I would not wish to make any comment of substance, but I do have one of language. He had some other observations too, very minor, he said, to be stored in a memory bank for the next edition. Ambassador Rosen's statements in the Sixth Committee were learned and courteous, and copies were sent to the court. 
By 1980, he was communicating with the new registrar, but old friend, Santiago Torres Bernardes. The correspondence now takes on a more personal tone. He was especially interested in some issues of precedence of judges he saw arising from possible alternative interpretations of different provisions of the 1978 rules of court. And of course, there have been many such uh, problems relating to issues of precedence, uh, given the arrangements initially made with the court and then the advent of several new tribunals and the international uh, criminal uh, court. And throughout, if he was about to write or say anything of the court, he made sure that the matter was both notified and discussed with the registry in advance. And the questions to the registrar continued, often coming into focus as he prepared a further publication. For example, in 1982, he was working on the 1978 rules of the International Court. He had an eagle eye for any discrepancy. There was nothing about the court that did not attract his perceptive interest. He wanted to understand fully the extremely complex subject of the financing of the court, always a technical subject and one which was to present the court with an extraordinary problem in 2007-8. He concerned himself with publication problems in very considerable detail. He wanted the very best for law librarians so far as the court is concerned. He proposed the use of the ISBN or ISSN system for identifying the court's publications, along with internal publication symbols. These matters, too, had not escaped his eye. The court is invariably supportive of scholars and seeks to answer a specific question or to agree to send an early typescript copy of a case awaiting publication. We many of us have benefited from that. But which of us sends to the registrar at that time, Lopez Olivan, a questionnaire of 15 complex questions, some related to the court's history, several to the mechanics of finance, fees paid to experts. Rosem wanted to know what was the precise date of the formal termination of the employment of the registrar of the Permanent Court of International Justice. In his covering letter, he opined, I'm now quoting, in general, it seems to me that the present court 
is in fact more closely geared into the mechanism of the United Nations than the permanent court was in the mechanism of the League. I'm trying to analyze whether this has affected the court's general standing in any appreciable extent. My first inclination is to say that those budgetary and administrative debates are not good and may have an adverse effect on the general standing of the court. His remarks would have much to commend them in an ideal world. The somewhat curious and very unsatisfactory system at the UN, which decides on the court budget, does not allow it the luxury of standing aside during its formation. He did, of course, receive a reply to his long questionnaire. Rosen had an interest also in our regard printing for dual language texts, and the registry engaged in internal research on Rosen's part, and fascinating exchanges followed. As is well known, Rosen's output never flagged. He worked to notify the court that he was engaged in some particular work or other. For example, as he put it, a short monograph on intervention, one of the great books on that topic. But he always held up publication as he made inquiries of the court and awaited certain pleadings volumes that were being sent to him. Throughout the 90s, the frequent exchange of correspondence continued unabated between Rosen and successive registrars and between Rosen and specific members of the registry who had sought the legal and archival material to assist him on a particular point. The pace of the correspondence was aided by Rosen's skill with email. The court librarian also watched as his eyes, sending him new articles on particular topics on which he'd said he would like to be kept informed. There were issues raised as to whether the interpretation of an interlocutory judgment is really a new case. And he was concerned as to whether the new practice directions introduced in 2001 had been properly promulgated, as he put it. A reply from Philippe Couvreur explained the precise mechanism for the new notification of the states this was the stage at which the court was seeking to break away from the old, intensely time-consuming and formalistic method of communication with member states. 
and the court was also justly proud of its website and wanted use made of it. The outcome was, as Registrar Couvreur described, he said, practice directions will be published on the court's website. Any amendments to them will be published on the website, and states have been so advised by letter. So the old diplomatic way of communicating with each and every state, and again when any alteration to a text was made, was then finished. The barrage of scholarly questions continued, always receiving a courteous and informative reply from Registrar Couvre. Sometimes Rosen was not seeking information. He was pointing out perceived textual errors. For example, uh, he would always say this out of courtesy. I'm sure he would say it's a typo, but, and then would go on to point out the error. A typo in a judge's declaration and inconsistencies in the references to a certain judgment. He also often inserted the word possible to allow the possibility that perhaps everything was correct. But then he went to battle, citing another judgment and contending this time that the term two-thirds, two-thirds, had appeared, whereas it should have been two-thirds without the hyphen. The debate moved on to how these words had been put in the relevant convention from which they were taken, which was before the court, and whether the court needed to follow any erroneous insertion of a hyphen. Rosen also took a great interest in the court's website and wrote with various detailed proposals for further improvements when the new website came out in 2007. On the 3rd of February 2009, he wrote, on the occasion of the delivery of the court's 100th judgment, I would like to offer my congratulations and words of appreciation to the registrars and registry personnel for their contribution to the court's work. I have had the pleasure of working with each one of these registrars. It's always been a pleasure and, he added, sometimes a real challenge. Rosen saw clearly what was going well and what were ongoing problems for the court. In that connection, he made proposals for dealing with the problem of arrears in the publication of, court, of the court decisions of various sorts. On the 25th of August, 2010, he urged the registrar, quote, have a decent vacation this summer. Less than a month later, Shabtai Rosen died. It will be helpful, I think, 
to take a look at some of the many issues that so concerned Shabtai Rosen, both in his law and practice of the International Court and as evidenced in his stream of correspondence with seven registrars. One question that interested Rosen, as his publications show, was that of the relationship of the court with the UN more generally. Whether being a principal organ of equal rank with other principal organs entitles the court to judicially review the decision of the other principal UN organs for international law legality generally, or charter constitutionality in particular, is not wholly clear. The issue came to the forefront in the Lockerbie cases, where Libya asked the court to find invalid certain Security Council decisions regarding sanctions in the face of a refusal to hand over to the United States and the United Kingdom the persons indicted for the downing of Pan Am Flight 103. The case was withdrawn by Libya when the matter moved instead to a so-called Scottish trial of those persons in the Netherlands before the matter could be finally resolved by the International Court. It remains one of the great unanswered questions. Be that as it may, the decisions of the International Court of Justice are not under the control, formal or substantive, of the other organs of the United Nations. The President does make an annual report to the General Assembly and in recent years usually engages in an annual closed-door dialogue with the Security Council on cases that have touched on peace and security issues. But what has been decided by the court in specific cases is neither queried nor challenged. The judicial independence of the court is guaranteed within the UN system. The court is, of course, the only main organ of the UN that is located away from New York. This has its advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is that this physical distance does undoubtedly protect the independence of the court. It is not in the daily sight of other organs with their own agendas. And the judges can get on with their work away from all the politics and negotiation that inevitably characterizes the work of the other organs at UN headquarters. Although the court scrutinizes with care what directives may from time to time be issued about or for secretariat personnel and will adopt for itself ideas that seem useful, International Court of Justice staff are not technically members of the UN Secretariat. But there's a price to be paid for this physical distance from the rest of the United Nations. 
the court sometimes feels the neglected organ. Its work not being visible day in and day out on agendas circulated at the UN, its budgetary needs to support their work seems often lost from sight. Rosen was very concerned that the budgetary constraints under which the court worked were damaging. I think everyone here knows that the International Court of Justice operates under very strict financial budgeting. Being a main organ of the UN, it's prohibited from seeking funding from any source save the UN itself. It cannot go to governments or to foundations. The annual budget is 23 million US dollars compared to the budget of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which stands at $130 million, even as it winds down. And the International Criminal Court's annual budget of 100 million euros. The International Court of Justice's uh, budget represents less than 1% of the entire UN budget. A principal organ, think of that, costing less than 1% to the organization. I do believe with its throughput of cases in recent years, the importance of those judgments to relieving international tensions and the impressive compliance rate with the legal solutions the court indicates, this 1% budget makes the court the most cost-effective part of the United Nations. There's absolutely no slack. It's a struggle to give a lunch to judges from other leading courts. It's exceedingly difficult to mount seminars with other courts directed to minimizing fragmentation among them. There's simply no budget for anything as such. And until recently, the court did not have the resources it felt it needed in terms of personnel and IT for carrying out its judicial work, though this last has improved within the last 18 months. I'll take this occasion to say that the budget system within the United Nations is odd, to say the least. The court operates on a biennial budget. Budget submissions go first to the relevant offices within the Secretariat. Getting the Secretariat on side is the first step that's necessary, but far from sufficient. In my time as president, I found the Secretariat generally and ultimately the Secretary General specifically very supportive of the court's modest requests. Rosen was kind enough to write to the court in 2007 to see that he could see the great progress made in eliminating the backlog of cases on the court's docket. There was no magic wand that could achieve that, though undoubtedly it would be necessary, it was necessary, for the court to improve its efficiency. 
an early measure taken by the court for increased efficiency was the reserving of the judicial note, the initial impression of a judge on a case, for, for cases when they got to the merits. Let me explain what I mean by that. Immediately, immediately after each case, the court meets to settle what are the issues to be thought about and what are what I may term make-weight contentions of the parties. This exercise is done in a detail so meticulous, I believe it would astonish you. The court's philosophy is that every serious point made deserves to be considered unless it should become without purpose for one reason and another. Then each judge is allowed about three weeks to go back into the files, review all the oral argument, undertake further research, and prepare a note containing his or her responses to the key issues and the underlying uh, reasons. Now, by dint of internal changes and the establishment of a very heavy schedule, with always more than one considered state case under consideration at a time, and sometimes these days several, and with vacations cut to an absolute minimum, uh, things have improved considerably. It was since the late 1980s that the court began to get a much greater caseload. And the cases now come in from all corners of the world dealing with a remarkably wide range of legal problems. No longer was the International Court a court that dealt, and then only occasionally, with boundary problems. Though efficiency is always in view, there are certain factors that are a given for the court and which may immediately rule out certain courses of action. The quality of the work is to be maintained and sight is never to be lost of the fact that the court is the court of the entire United Nations. The unwavering belief is that all judges are involved in the life of a case. It may be fine for regional courts to have advocates general or juge rapporteur who play leading roles in designated cases, but a judgment of the International Court of Justice is, really is, a product of the entire bench. The entire bench sets the direction and then uh, two, occasionally more judges, assist the president in the preparation of the text of the judgment. But even then, the case will three times, an invitation to make written amendments and two readings, go back to the plenary court for further debate and scrutiny. This collegial way of working is necessarily slower than the production of texts by individual juge rapporteur, but it allows the perception of the international court as the court of the entire United Nations to be a reality. It also, by the way, ensures that nothing is missed. Little will get by 15 judges as well as any judges ad hoc who might be sitting focusing on the same legal problem. 
It's the General Assembly and the Security Council which elects the members to the bench. It's vastly important that this vital beauty is not politicized. By that, I mean that only candidates of the highest caliber should be put forward by the national nominating groups and states should vote within the regional groups, of course, for the very best candidates. Women should not be nominated or voted for simply because they are women. Nor should nominating groups believe that the court is a sinecure for retiring judges who have served on national supreme courts. If persons nominated and elected are not international lawyers of great caliber, they'll be uncomfortable within the court and will be able little to assist the court in its work. Nor should candidates be elected because they are to be packaged as part of a deal for another sort of election elsewhere in the UN. Quality is paramount. Roseanne always managed to separate his functions as a government representative and his academic calling. In talking of these different hats, I must mention Rosen's intermittent participation in practice before the court. He represented his government in advisory opinions in the Reservations to Genocide Convention case and was agent in the Aerial Incident case. Later, after he left the service of his country, he engaged in some international practice as advisor or counsel in cases before the court. And he was advisor to the United States in the so-called Elsie case and the Lagrande uh, cases. He also assisted the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, Serbia and Montenegro in the provisional measures phase of the genocide convention case. He was not advocate in these cases, but no doubt brought important legal understandings to his clients. As one goes over the tangible materials that demonstrate the relationship between Shabtai Rosen and the International Court of Justice, some thoughts occur to me with certitude. The first is that Rosen knew always which hat he was wearing. There was, in his substantive writing on the court, as opposed to its procedures, nothing which suggests for a minute that his views were colored by what might have been of interest to his government. That was not the hat he was wearing. Conversely, he also well understood that others in the world of international law have also needed to wear different hats in their lives. He understood that in certain times in the General Assembly, harsh things might be said, and that friendships were not easily come by. He understood the realities, and in a different life, where he was meeting with scholars, none of that was relevant to the subject under discussion. 
to mark the 50th anniversary of the International Court of Justice in 1996, a commemorative gathering in the presence of Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands was carefully arranged under the presidency of Judge Bejawi of Algeria. And the sole speaker invited on that occasion was Shabtai Rezen. To the court, the choice was self-evident. It was, and was meant to be a vast compliment. And the invitation was accepted with genuine delight, I think, by Shabtai Rosen. Incidentally, Rosen was later invited to launch his fourth edition of the Law and Practice of the International Court, published by his longtime publisher, Nyhoff at the 60th anniversary of the court, which occurred during my presidency. It was not just that law in politics was, in the context of the court, exchange for pure law without politics. Several judges who've had a previous life in legal controversies in the UN while in the service of their countries have also made that life change. But Rosen was capable of wearing different hats even at the very same moment. While serving his country in Jerusalem or at the UN or elsewhere, with the best and most robust legal arguments he could muster, he was at the very same time writing in impeccably impartial terms about matters at the International Court. And even in private, no discourteous or critical remarks were ever made about others, whether former adversaries in the UN or others plying their trade in international law. He read very, very widely, not only the cases and information on procedural matters emanating from the court, but also what was being said in the legal journals. He was very appreciative of the work being done by certain younger scholars and built up friendships with them. I heard him speak admiringly of the quality of their work. He knew full well that when he gave the general course at the Hague Academy of International Law on the site of the Peace Palace, he was wearing yet another hat. That the course was very fine was to be expected. What had not so readily been seen, however, was how he would devote himself, I mean really devote himself, to the students who came to hear him. Lunchtime and coffee breaks went unnoticed. Professor Rosen sat in his room with an open door so that he might be available to students who had questions or wanted to talk with him. These different hats were really a manifestation of a highly developed sensibility as to what was appropriate or when. When he wished to pass congratulations to an incoming president or vice president, this was always done by asking the registrar to pass these good wishes. 
During my own presidency, 2006 to 9, our contacts continued as before, and this was easy because he'd always spoken before with deep courtesy and avoided discussion on the substance of particular cases. After some momentous case or other, I'd receive an email from Rosen saying that he was coming through The Hague and might he invite me and my husband Terence to lunch or dinner. There we would talk about the health of our families and then Shabtai would speak at length of some fascinating and obvious and often minute point that he'd come across in his scholarly endeavors. He would tell us too of his research plans. Whatever he just achieved or published, he would speak, even at age 92. Also of research and writings to come. We discussed all of this, but never ever did we speak of the cases in the court. By 2008, in 2008, the International Court had been faced with extremely challenging legal issues, requiring decision in the midst of much public uproar and shouting in a case that Georgia brought against the Russian Federation. Basing itself so that it could find a basis of jurisdiction on claims relating to discrimination in the relevant UN Convention, Georgia sought at this stage some interim measures. It was a very, very difficult case for the court. Shabtai too had views he wished to share on the court, but he wore his usual hat when he sent his query to the registrar. He wished to tell Mr. Couvreur that while the judgment had used the letters CERD, C-E-R-D, as an abbreviation for the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, I'm quoting, the letters CERD are already appropriated in the UN to signify the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Now, in sharing with you, and I'm now coming to my conclusion, the story of the inside track that Rosen, the outsider, had at the court. I've emphasized his restraint. But I would not wish to leave you with the impression that we are tonight recalling a mild and meek man. Those who knew him best as legal advisor to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which he was until 1967, or as deputy representative of Israel to the UN in New York and as and in 1971 as permanent representative to the UN and other international organizations in Geneva, we'll recall him as a vigorous and powerful proponent of the position of his country. In academic life too, his colleagues would not recognize the description of Rosen as this courteous man always aware of the sensibilities. There was one annual gathering of limited membership that he and I, as a beginner, attended in the 60s, where the agenda for discussion was rarely reached because of his furious disagreements with one particular person, 
just recurred each year. And at the Institut de Droit International, members would often feel somewhat intimidated by his scaling oral interventions. I remember well my own feelings as my report on the legal consequences of member states of the non-fulfillment by international organizations of their obligations towards third parties received the all too vigorous attention of Roseanne in the plenary. But then it was all a question of hats. Excellency, members of the Roseanne family, ladies and gentlemen, it's meant much to me and been an honor for me to give this lecture in memory of this extraordinary man. 